So the first question this evening was a request that Lumpur speak about gratitudes to parents because he's done so so beautifully in the past and people want to hear it again. Well, like, <clears throat> gratitude is uh, in Thai, in Pali is katanyu katavaiti, so it's an important foundation for meditation. And you can't just consciously be grateful, you know, so, because you're supposed to be, like you're supposed to be grateful to your parents, to your teachers, and so forth. So that's the ideal, you know, is gratitude. But the reality of gratitude is more through reflection. So like, in my own case, you know, I'm very... My parents were very good people, but when I became a teenager, I started feeling critical of them. I could see flaws and weaknesses, and and my generation of Americans were, were encouraged to be critical of our parents. And gratitude was not something that particularly an American value that is uh, part of the culture. It's, so when I went to Thailand and, and uh, my attitude was more like self-centered interest in getting enlightened, getting samadhi, <clears throat> there was so much of myself as an individual trying to attain and get uh, all these desirable states, get enlightened, get rid of anger and greed and so forth. But then in, in Dhamma practice, you know, when I uh, went to live with Lumpa Chad, Wat Pa Nong Papong and Ubon, you know, I spent uh, you know, I was very well received. Lung Po Cha was extremely kind to me from the very beginning. And uh, he gave me a lot of attention, took a great interest, and so the other monks also, and then the lay people, the villagers. And I wasn't expecting it, you know, I was just uh, rather impressed and touched, moved by the fact that that I was, uh, you know, a foreigner that was being treated so well and respected. But my practice still very centered, was very centered around me as a person attaining and getting, getting samadhi. The Western, Westerners in Bangkok, the expatriates that lived there at the time that were interested in Buddhism and meditation, well, you know, we all talked about getting jhanas and samadhi and and so forth. So the the character tendency was practiced in a very kind of self-centered uh, attaining attitude. And then uh, in the Thai culture, of course, gratitude to parents is part of a, a cultural encouragement. And so I started, you know, and Lung Pachad mentioned it quite often. 
And so I started thinking in terms of my parents, in terms of being grateful rather than critical. And then my experience with uh, Ajahn Chah and the Wat Bapong monks and the lay people in Uwan, you know, I was reflected on the goodness being extended, the hospitality, the, the uh, welcoming that I received, uh, the encouragement to meditate, you know, to Everybody, you know, I, I thought, you know, everybody here, Lumpur Chad, all the monks, lay people, everybody in Thailand wants me to become an Arahant, wants me to become enlightened. And so, you know, they feed me, they give me shelter, robes, food, they give me the best they can. And just by reflecting in this way, you know, um, the, the the generosity of the 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 uh, Dana Barami of Thailand is quite astounding to someone who is not Thai and comes to you know to to study Buddhism and practice it. So I began to feel a genuine gratitude towards Ajahn Chah and. And that was I reflected on uh, the generosity that I was receiving. I even, you know, even when I was Samanera in Nongkai, I I got permanent residency right away because on, on the New Year's I was I was told that I should go to the immigration office in Bangkok in the New Year. And uh, because it was, you know, there weren't that many prapfrang or foreign monks in Thailand at the time, so they didn't have a lot of bureaucratic positions to take on it. So I remember on the, in the day after New Year's when the immigration office opened up, I, I went into the, I was there early in the morning before they opened, and so I was one of the first people into the into the immigration building and uh, and I looked at the clerks and I thought you know they they can't you know they 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 probably won't help me you know they'll probably make it all very difficult so I thought I'll go to the head of the immigration just on an impulse I climbed up the steps to the it's the second floor where the head of immigration had his office. And just as I arrived at the top of the stairs, uh, the uh, uh, immigration officer came out of his office and surprised to see a prop rang and invited me in to his office, gave me a, uh, some oval team and, <laughs> and said, what can I do for you? And I said, well, I'm, here in Thailand to uh, study and practice Buddhism. So he said he arranged very quickly for me to get permanent residency. So I always remember that with gratitude because it's like reflecting on the goodness of of your life, the kindness that you receive from your mother and father.
And my parents were very good people, you know, they're very moral, very uh, kind to me, you know, they were uh, provided a nice home and clothes and food and so forth. So I started thinking of all the kindness generated through, you know, towards me and my sister by my mother and father over the years. And I stopped being critical, you know, and I gave up that because usually the criticisms were rather petty and not terribly significant. But the, you know, the generosity the and recognizing that I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my mother and father. So this is, this gatanyugatawaiti, this gratitude, there's a, is a kind of, through reflecting on the generosity, the goodness that you've received from your parents, from teachers, from friends, you begin to experience this as a, as a beautiful underlying emotional feeling, which is very, you know, is, it's not just a sentimental feeling, you know, that you create. But it's through our ability to reflect on the, the goodness of our lives and the, the kindness, the generosity, the wisdom that we've received from others. So I found that, that once I began to experience gratitude, I found the Patipata practices much more easy. Where before we were so self-centered, you know, and me as a person uh, trying to get something I wanted, which you know I could I could get tranquil through willpower sometimes, but I couldn't. I didn't have a much sustainable samadhi or understanding. Just uh, I became the you know so greedy and so obsessed with myself. Where Gatanya Gatavaiti opened me up in a way of, of to others, to my parents, to Lumpacha, to the lay people. And that gave me a, a kind of sense of ease and, and it's a beautiful feeling to be grateful. And it's joyful feeling, so it's like the factors of enlightenment, you know, and you're developing these, these good qualities that lead to enlightenment rather than just, you know, the ego trying to get something it wants through, through, uh, you know, willful, uh, efforts not based on wisdom or any, foundation of, of joy or gratitude that comes when we reflect on that which, you know, on the goodness of our parents, their kindness, their benevolence, their interests, their support, as well as our teachers, friends, relatives. The next question is about how to practice patience. Patience, uh, as I said before, this is uh, 
important. Uh, you can't develop, you can't really practice if you, if you, if you don't patiently endure things. Because you can't just make yourself patient. There's a kind of patience like grit your teeth and bury it, you know, kind of, uh, a willful endurance kind of patience. And that, uh, you know, that's still coming from, from the ego, from I'm gonna, I'm going to conquer this pain and I'm going to make myself patient with my restless feelings and so forth. So that, that's still coming from the ideal of you should be patient. So, you know, we, we all know we should be patient and, uh, it's, it's a virtue. We know that in terms of, you know, the intellect, and we do, we agree with it. But just seeing patience as, as something you've got to impose on yourself through kind of gritting your teeth and grin and bear it attitudes is still very unpleasant, you know, and it's not very sustainable. You know, you do it for, a few times and you don't want to do it anymore because it's so, so kind of miserable just to be caught in kind of willful endurance. But I found that patience came through reflecting on impatience. You know, the wanting to get something right away, not wanting having to wait. So in the monastic life, as I first experienced in Wat Lumpo Cha, you know, one of his first teachings was you've got to develop patience. Kantibarami, patience, the virtue of patience. He said, you, you don't have very much patience. And I agreed, that was a criticism that I had no, uh, you know, I could completely agree with. A very impatient, restless person. And then the monastic life and the the, what they call the korwat, the, the established schedule in the monastery, and the way Rumpo Cha taught the Vinaya was a real exercise in patience. Having to, you know, just wait all the time when, you know, I was a newly ordained monk, so I was at the end of the line. So you always had to wait for the monk ahead of you to start eating before I could start eating. And, and, uh, Bindabat, you had to walk barefoot on gravelly roads with sharp rocks and, and, uh, eat from an alms bowl with the food all mixed up together. And this would take patient endurance. But just grin and bear it kind of patience made the life, you know, would make the life miserable. Because, you know, who wants to just live a life, you know, you can do it for a while in certain circumstances, but as a, as a daily life experience, you want convenience and, and get your own way and get things that you want, not have to wait for them. But uh, the 
the style of meditation that Lumpata encouraged was this mindfulness practice. So he wasn't demanding that I be patient as a kind of commandment, you know, that I had to be patient, but be aware of impatience, restlessness, resentment, anger that I would experience. And then I found through that, you know, I became, you know, something I could easily see, you know, my, the waiting for the monk ahead of me to start eating his meal. Sometimes the monks, senior monks would take their time and then you'd feel this resentment and anger. You could observe that. I could observe that. You, you wanted to, you know, when you give in, they've, pass the food out, you want to start eating, you're hungry, you only have one meal a day. And then some monks take their time before they start eating and you feel very impatient. But you can watch that, observe that. This this way I would feel impatient led towards patience. Because I can see just by trying to suppress impatience would make me, you know, operate from the bitter position of just willful endurance, grin and bear it, attitudes that are very, you know, are suffering. They're not pleasant to, to impose on yourself just this, I've got to bear with this, you know, auton practice patience. And Nungho Cha would definitely you know, he talk in Thai. They talk about they use the word toraman, which means to endurance, to endure, patiently endure. But toraman to an English-speaking person sounds like torture. The English word torture. So they say Cha likes to toraman his disciples. The Farangs, the foreigners, who say that tortures his disciple. And that's what it seemed like sometimes. <laughs> you know, like, you feel, you could feel this resentment towards Lumpur Cha, you know, as if he's torturing oneself. But then you see what he's doing. He's not imposing any kind of miserable conditions on us or that is just learning to endure. Being patient. Waiting your turn. Not just trying to, you know, start eating when you, on impulse or doing things just without reflection, without understanding. So on this retreat, you know, observe, be the knower if you feel restless, impatient, negative. This is a practice to be aware of it, you know. If this is what you're feeling, you know, this, these kind of emotions, these kind of mental states, what you're experiencing, you're aware of them, you know you're impatient. So it's not to try to 
get rid of impatience by imposing an idea of patience, but learning the suffering of impatience is like this, which leads towards a natural kind of relaxed patience, endurance, and peacefulness. Ajahn well, Asok was being very patient. <laughs> the next question is about anger. Mindfulness never seems to come up quick enough, and anger is quicker. How to practice with that? Well, this is how it might seem like Anger is very, can be very sudden. And then you think you should, you know, you've got the idea that it's faster than mindfulness. But no, mindfulness is always present. So, you know, there's no way you, just the fact that you know you're angry is mind, you're aware of it. Even if it, you know, arises very suddenly. And uh, so patient, you know, like mindfulness isn't something that you ever lack, or you've got to use it ahead of anger, you know, you form these uh, kind of opinions about it. But, you know, anger does arise very immediately. And, and you're aware of it, you know. Then you you're trying to you think you should be mindful of it. You're making it into something you've got to do rather than just trusting. It's like this: this feeling of anger. It's hot. It's a strong emotion. You know, you feel it in your body. And so, like then, patience with anger. Yeah, and kind of inform yourself, like wanting to get rid of it, or you know. And then, in in terms of sila, we we uh, we try not to speak on anger, angry emotions. Make a, a determination, you know. Where, no matter how angry, I don't say anything. So in in America, my parents used to tell me when I got angry to count to ten before I said anything, which was quite good advice, actually. Because if you just follow anger, then you blurt out all kinds of things that you regret later. So like right speech and and uh, taking responsibility for speaking, like the uh, speech and action, like the sila, the moral precepts, are the kind of foundation for action and speech. But anger, you can't take a moral position on, you know, like never getting angry or that it's a sin. You know, you can feel guilty about it or see it as, make it into personal problem, or some kind of neurotic 
idea of, you know, you're an angry, you could create yourself. Uh, some people see themselves as angry people. And, uh, you know, they describe themselves as you know, having this as a personal problem. This is created through thinking, through identifying with anger. You know, so we feel anger and then we say, I'm an angry person. Anger is, is a emotion that, you know, it's a primal emotion of the species. It has a purpose, you know, it's not just neurotic hang up and something wrong with oneself that you've got to conquer or suppress or get rid of. But to understand it, And it's not, so then we use these terms like mindfulness, and then, you know, restraining yourself not to speak or physically act on anger. You can, you know, you're still aware of wanting to, to, uh, say something in anger, blurt out something, or even physically hit somebody. You can, you know, there's awareness. If you, if you trust your awareness, you can be aware of these, these uh, kind of impulses to say something in anger or physically act on it. But in terms of being responsible for action and speech, we refrain from speaking or acting. And even if you forget that and you speak or act on it physically, there's a point where you suddenly realize, you know. So every moment is a moment of awareness. You know, we can get carried away with our emotions and, and feel we've lost mindfulness, but consciousness is always present. You know, it doesn't change or, and, and, Awareness, consciousness never gets angry, you know, it's not angry. And one insight, you know, I had that was quite brilliant for me was to recognize when anger was present that awareness wasn't angry. That the emotion was, you could call it anger. But awareness isn't angry. So it's, and that's where your refuge is in awareness, in mindfulness, rather than grasping the anger either through following it, grasping it, becoming an angry person, or resisting it, fighting, trying to repress it, are the two extremes, to, to grasp it, indulge in it, or resist it. And you can see that in your, you observe, if you trust your awareness, you can, Observe how you want to, you know, grasp it and and act on it, speak on it. Because it's kind of powerful feelings of wanting to blurt out something, act on it, hit somebody. is like this. But as you trust your awareness, the tendency to act and speak on, on anger, you know, fades away. 
and the and the desire to suppress it, resist it, get rid of it. We see that that's struggling, trying to, you know, feeling guilty about it, feeling, you know, creating it into some kind of personal identity. I'm an angry person. How do I get rid of anger? And that's a common question I found on people in retreatants, mindfulness retreats. Often, one of their questions is, "How do I get rid of anger?" You know, I have a people say, "I," you know, individuals will say, "I have an anger. I'm an angry person. I have an anger problem." And this is, you know, when you identify with anger, like saying, I'm an angry person, I have a problem with anger, that's a creation of thought, isn't it? You're, you're claiming identity, ownership of this emotion, where with satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom, there's awareness of anger, Don't make it into some kind of personal identity. It is what it is. So you're not trying to delude yourself or, or make anything, you know, trying to create an illusion about you're not an angry person. But the very thought, I'm an angry person, is a creation, an added creation, an identity, a kind of grasping of that particular perception, that emotion. And then you see it in terms of a a personal problem, where in changing from this, I'm making things personal and judging them according to, you know, right and wrong, good or bad, you're, you're taking the puto, the Buddha position of awareness, knowing anger is like this, resisting anger is like this, following anger is like this. In this way, you, you learn it, you know, you're learning from experience. You're learning how to be patient. Your patience comes naturally through wisdom, through understanding, not as just trying to impose some ideal onto your mind and to your or your emotions. So anger, you know, human animals get angry, cats and dogs get angry, and things like this. Is, this is kind of a necessary emotion for. The, the species, survival mechanism. But, of course, you know, in human beings, because we think a lot, we have a retentive memory, we identify, we possess our anger. Sexuality, we, we make it into a kind of personal identity where it is primal kind of conditioning. The species is, is you know, born to procreate the species. This is part of the nature of the human body, male or female. But modern life, you read, you know, you look at YouTube videos and things like everybody's identifying with some kind of sexual activity 
as uh, their main identity. You know, they, and they see sexuality in very personal terms. But actually, sexuality is part of the species, you know, it's the, it's a, the, the human species, this is a sexual form, the human form. And then now there's so many discussions about homosexuality and so forth, you know, in terms of identity. So this becomes one in one's sole identity, you know, I, with sexual inclinations or habits. But sexuality, no matter what your inclinations are, is tamachan, is natural. And how we relate to, you know, how our sexual inclinations are dependent on karma, you know, that don't take it so personally and see it in terms of, you know, right and wrong, good or bad. But in terms of moral precepts, uh, to refrain from using sexuality as exploiting others or misuse it, to, to you know, to such as violent sexual tendencies or imposing your will on others or things that that create uh, you know resentment anger and and fear so like lust or sexual desire is you know that's part of the that's why we're here. We're born because of sexual activity. So this is, you know, like then in terms of stream entry, you know, the sotapanna, when you see the path, is, there's still sexual desire for the sakadakami, the next stage, ragadana and, and aversion. But the, the kind of taking it personally, like in uh, the first three fetters, Sakyaditi, Sila Bhattabharma, you know, this is where we make sexuality very personal and judgmental. We make value judgments, moral judgments about it, and take it very personally. Uh, where when we see through the 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 personality, the sakyaditi, the the cultural conditioning towards sexuality, and the thinking process that creates doubts, then the next stage is still sexual desire, lust, and aversion. But they're seen no longer identified in personal terms and made, and judged accordingly of right or wrong, good or bad. So, you know, this sense of personal identity with, with sexuality, that's an illusion, you know, that 
that we, you know, we become attached to that particular perception. And it is only a perception. So mindfulness is awareness of this. Of, of, you know, our sexual obsessions, our identity with anger, aversion, with greed, with hatred, our, you know, how we identify with des- uh, delusions, with feelings of confusion, worry, anxiety, fear. Like life can be just one big worrying experience because the future is, you know, anything's possible in the future, anything you can imagine. And if you're a worrier, you know, then the future is always filled with possible failure or poverty or loss or bad health or sickness and, uh, you know, the future, you know, we hope for the future, the hopes are that we'll be healthy and strong and successful and make money and and have stable, strong relationships and uh, live comfortably and stay healthy till we die. That's the hope for the future. And then the dread is that everything, uh, the opposite of that, everything will go wrong. And, you know, who's to blame? So, like being aware of, of hope, you know, the way we project in the future, hopes everything's going to be okay. Or dread, you know, you can worry about, what if the economy fails? What if there's, Political revolution. What if, what about climate change? What about the warming of the climate and the problems with flooding and, and, uh, scarcity of water and, and overpopulation? You know, you, you start thinking about all these things and there's a lot, the future holds nothing but worries and potential misery and suffering. Or if you're an optimist, you think everything's going to be okay. And I remember, you know, being, you know, my experience like at Amravati in England was, I'd go away sometimes, uh, you know, to America or come back to Thailand and then I'd go back to England and land at Heathrow Airport and, and you know, I, I wasn't into emails in those days, so I wasn't up to date of what was happening. All I wanted to hear when I arrived at Heathrow was, everything's okay. Just tell me everything, even if it isn't, tell me it's okay. (laughs) That's what I wanted to hear. And then suddenly one of the monks says, I just made it, we have a crisis. And then you kind of tense up, that's what you don't want to hear. But, you know, awareness is aware of that, how 
you know, everything okay makes me feel like this. Everything's going along okay, there's no crisis. And then, then there is a crisis, you, you can tense up and this is the reaction. So it's not about not feeling anything, but your, your refuge is in the awareness of the feeling, not in the feeling. So you're learning from the way you are, you know, the kind of character tendencies you have. Whatever they might be, you know, so, you know, you've got to learn you know, this, this formation, the human form, your bodies, your character tendencies, your karma, is what you learn from. You know, none of us have ideal bodies or karmic tendencies or characteristics. There's, you know, so these are subject to change and praise and blame, success and failure and so forth. So that what is stable and a refuge and what you can trust is your awareness of the changing conditions. All conditions are impermanent rather than hoping to have permanently good conditions, which is impossible, or feeling that life is, you know, there's just about, is disappointing and despairing and, and, you know, it's not worth anything, is the opposite tendency. But what isn't going to one extreme or the other is the awareness conscious awareness here and now, timeless. The present moment is all there ever really is in experience. You know, experience is always now. Experience in the future is imagined. Experiences we remember from the past are just memories that arise now. Where now is where we experience reality here and now through awareness, reflective ability on the way things are, all conditions are impermanent. All Dhamma is not personal, not a separate personal self. So the next question pertains to kamma, and the kamma we make through body, speech, and mind is what causes birth and rebirth. How does that fit into intuitive awareness? Mindfulness is not karma. So when we take refuge in mindfulness, We're not making any karma with that. So karma is about conditioned phenomena, cause and effect. So we all have, like, because, you know, we were born, the physical body was born so many years ago, and uh, then it, you know, it's, we have this Law of karma is a good reflection to do good. You, you, you know, you receive good. If you do bad, you receive bad. Uh, 
if you think good thoughts, you know, you think positively about everything, you feel happy is the result of thinking in positive terms. And thinking in negative terms, you feel depressed and miserable and angry. You can prove this for yourself just by, just by thinking positively for half an hour. And you feel, you know, you feel positive. And then you think negatively for half an hour, you feel depressed. But that which is aware of feeling positive or negative is neither positive nor negative. It is not karma. It's awareness. It's the amatta dhamma or ultimate reality that we're taking refuge in. So karma, the word karma applies to conditioned phenomena. And I found, you know, like, in, because in Thailand the culture is very much aware of, you know, the law of karma, it's part of the cultural conditioning. Tum di di di, tum chua di chua, that you, is that to do good you receive good, you do bad you receive bad. And that's kind of, every school child in Thailand knows that. You know, it's, it's part of the cultural conditioning that Westerners, Europeans, Americans don't really have. So you, you think, you know, not, not a powerful kind of importance in Western civilization, where in the Buddhist countries, it's, you know, it's very much integrated into the whole cultural world outlook, personal training, personal uh, identity is the law of karma. So it's about cause and effect. So the, the Western mind thinks more in terms of cause and effect to some kind of scientific, in some scientific way. But in, in, a, in our own personal experience of life, because we've got to live with ourselves for a lifetime. You know, we've got to live with this form, with this body, and the character tendencies and habit patterns, emotional habits and fears and worries and that that, that each individual has. Then the moral precepts are to, like the five precepts in, in the sila, is, you know, to be responsible for action and speech. So that's karma. When we act on, you know, we, hang, we get angry and we say something in anger to hurt somebody or we hit them uh, physically that we would say is bad karma because we've we've acted on on the, the actual 
you know, in Vipaka Kama of our lives is we, we do get angry. The, the species, the, the human individual package is about greed, hatred, and delusion. Greed and, and resentment and anger. So, then we can, like we, we agree on, like the, for this retreat, the moral precepts, eight precepts, three refuges, eight precepts, is part of a, the tradition of Theravada Buddhism. And that's about action and speech. It's not about what you think or feel. So in terms of the eight precepts, like on this retreat, we live within that restraint of action and speech. So it doesn't mean we don't get angry or greedy or confused or resentful or worried or anxious. But that's the point of a retreat is to be the observer, be the witness to these emotions to the, what they call vipaka kama, actions of the past, results of uh, things we've done and said in the past, come back to us through, you know, we feel guilty about things we've done in the past. Things we've said in the past or physically done in the past, we can feel guilty about it in the present. That's the re- the vipaka kama that arises. But guilt is a condition that arises and ceases because it's attachment to memories. You remember what you've done in the past, whether it's, it's bad karma, if you've said things, lied, cheated, cursed, uh, deceived people, uh, physically done things, corrupt actions and so forth, you know, then the vipaka come of that is you remember it in the present. So these tend to make us frightened and guilty. And then we... Kuslan karma, doing good, you know, through speaking, through action, physical action, then that, the vipaka come of that is you feel good about yourself. You know, so like hiriotapa or, you know, hiriotapa is the Pali word for, like hiri is the self-respect. You know, if you keep the precepts, if you do good, refrain from doing bad, then you you have this sense of hiri, of self-respect. And otapa is like sensitivity towards life. You know, it's a sense of of respect for life, for society. So sometimes it's, uh, here the old topic can be translated in English as shame and dread. 
you know, about action and speech, but I prefer this interpretation. It's like, here he is, a sense of, you know, respect. If you, if you live a moral life, if you live within the, the, you know, to do good, refrain from doing evil, being responsible for his speech and action, then that you respect in yourself. I found like living the monastic life, the Buddhist monastic life here in Thailand, was you know, living in a way that you respect. You know, through you've got this Vinaya structure and and this tradition, so forth, and it's it's you know it's the one that you respect in itself. It's respectable, worthy of respect. The tradition. And then you you ordain and you train yourself and live within that structure of Vinaya. You develop self-respect, which is very, you know, beneficial towards mindfulness, towards bhavana, towards meditation. So karma, and then mindfulness, as I said in the very beginning, is non-karma. It's not about karma. It's transcending of karma, but it knows karma. There's knowing. It's like this. Bad thinking, you know, telling lies, cheating, taking advantage of others. You're aware of, you know, the awareness of the guilt or the fear or problems and neurotic problems that arise from living in a way that is unskillful. Where when you live according to like Donna, Sila, Bhavana, this sequence in like Donna is generosity Sila is uh, moral restraint and bhavana is meditation. You know, the very basis of bhavana is dana and sila. So like generosity is dana. That means, you know, not being stingy or mean-hearted, being generous. Like if you're selfish and miserly and stingy and so, you know, then you create uh, unpleasant karma for yourself. You can't really respect yourself. You just, you know, you're obsessed in selfish obsessions which create, you know, make you disliked by others, makes you live in a in a way that is full of fear and and self-centered attitudes. So dana, you know, is very much uh, like a generosity, sharing what you have with others. And that's the very basis of the, the practice, is generosity, not to be selfish. And then sila is the the precepts, the moral precepts, being responsible for action and speech, 
which lead to, you know, build, are the foundation, a stable foundation for pavana, pavana, which is translated as meditation, insight into Dhamma. So there's another question. Um, someone talking about having been at the practice for over 15 years already, knowing, having read everything about the Four Noble Truths, even memorized the Dhammachaka Sutta, and yet still feeling like a toddler on the path. So the person who asked this question, <laughs> And, you know, you're the one that thinks you're a toddler. Trust your awareness of what you're thinking, and you're not a toddler anymore. So, you know, I've studied Buddhism for 20 years, studied the Four Noble Truths, memorized the Dhammajaka, Pavatana Sutta, practice meditation, I haven't gotten anywhere. This is the thinking, you're thinking that, you're believing what you're thinking. And so you, you create yourself into a toddler. That's what you think you are. But if you're aware that you're not those thoughts, those thoughts come and go and no matter, you know, how much you've read or you know, like reading the scriptures is, is the, you know, gives inspiration. We, the, the suttas are inspiring. They give you direction. But inspiration is impermanent. You can't stay permanently inspired. And then expecting, you know, through meditation to get something, you know, so we, we come to meditation retreat hoping to get something from it. And then we don't get what we want. We feel we've failed. We're not good at meditation. This is all conceptual proliferation that you create. Whatever you think you are and believe you are, is the salsankaras you, you create, you're grasping this sense of yourself as, as someone who hasn't gotten anywhere. No, you know, they've done all this uh, on inspiration and, and uh, determination, expecting to get something from it, but missing the point of being that, you know, no matter how many inspiring talks you listen to or in suttas you read or memorize or, you know, how many inspiring conditions you, you, you participate in. If you be aware of, of the fact that, that you, you're expecting, expecting to get something from it. Wanting to, we like that feeling of being inspired. 
but as many of you can see on this retreat, that a lot of, you know, our life isn't about being inspired, it's about being depressed or restless or negative or feeling, you know, not good enough or that, we, you know, we can't meditate or it's too, too difficult, you know, so in, in as inspiring as Buddha Dhamma can be, the bhavana side isn't about, you know, giving you permanent inspiration as a kind of spoon-feeding you with inspiring messages, but encouraging you, encouraging you to look at desperation rather than inspiration, and, and despair, and the sense that you, you're not getting anywhere is like this, or that you spent 25 years uh, as a Buddhist and you, you're still a toddler is a, is a creation, you know, the thoughts. You create those thoughts, you identify with them. And my advice is don't believe those thoughts. They're not true. And if you trust your awareness, you see the thoughts you create are arise and cease, then you, you're not a toddler when you when you're mindful. You can be a, have a PhD in Buddhist philosophy and still see yourself as a toddler, you know, even though you, you're an authority and a scholar. If you've never practiced and if you, you know, if you've just acquired a lot of knowledge about Buddhism and, it, and feel inspired and written books and become an expert on it, it's still, you know, unless you look inward and see just the simple thinking process that no matter how intelligent and well-educated it might be, it's still conditioned phenomena. And what is unconditioned is awareness. You know, awareness is aware of thinking. Toddler is a word that you've uh, created and identify with. Maybe you're just being facetious or humble, but it's still an identity. And trust your awareness that, that the word toddler arises and ceases. And in, you know, intentionally think, after all these years I'm just a toddler, And what, you know, uh, you know, then the words themselves disappear. And there's still mindfulness. There's still conscious awareness in the absence of the words. And then, you, you know, you, you be, you're awakening to Dhamma rather than just, uh, you know, getting caught up in, in what, in thinking about yourself and your, attainments or lack of attainments. I think the last question for today is uh, if you could speak about guilt and the difference between guilt and remorse, regret. Well, guilt is 
you know, one time at Amaravati years ago, uh, Tanjokun Panyananda was visiting Amaravati. Tanjokun of Cholapatan, one of the, he passed away a few years ago, but he was one of the famous monks in Thailand. And, uh, he was very generous, very supportive of, of, us in England, he was very helped raise funds uh, to support the sangha in England, and came quite quite a few times to Amaravati and Chitters. And one time, I remember in Amaravati, uh, he was holding a questions and answers session like this with the English people who were you know, interested in Buddhism and meditation. And Ajahn Jayasaro was there uh, to translate. He's very good in Thai language. So, uh, one of the questions one of the people asked was about guilt. How do you, de- how do you deal with guilt? And uh, Ajahn Jayasaro to translate that into Thai. And, um, and he found it very difficult to find uh, equivalent in Thai, in the way that we Westerners feel guilt-ridden, you know, because in Tanjakun Panyanan, it took him a long time to to figure out what that person meant by guilt. And, uh, and then he just said, oh, that's just a minor movement of the mind, or dismissed it. <laughs> and uh, the Western, the English yogis all said, minor movement of the mind, and this is an obsession. And, uh, you know, so take an interest in the, in the experience of guilt. And uh, because, it, it, you know, being from the United States, you're brought up in a society that was based on ideals. Like America itself, the United States, was established from ideals. It wasn't a kind of evolved society from tribal to feudal to monarchy to democracy, you know. So, so you you've got this idea from the American conditioning that you know this very idealistic conditioning. So Americans tend to you know have, be very idealistic about everything, and ideals are, as I've been saying, are perfect. You know, like you have democracy, freedom, equality. And these are, are very beautiful ideals. Uh, human rights is an ideal and, and, uh, so forth. So you've got, you know, this, this sense of democracy and progress and, uh, and based on just the thinking process, not on understanding Dhamma or the way things are. So from my own experience, the tendency to feel guilty was always 
because uh, you know you're brought up with ideals being brought up as a christian you know you had these ideals about morality and and immorality you know and and uh, based on christian ideals and american democratic ideals so this is the conditioning of uh, the cultural conditioning and in thailand or in buddhist countries or in like in india or places well, asian countries you know they're much more like hinduism buddhism are much more they're not idealistic religions they're you know they talk about dhamma the way it is not about how the way it should be so it's more reflective so you know when when uh, Lumpa Panyananda, Tanjakun Panyananda was asked, he said, well, Thais basically like themselves. And uh, when the Dalai Lama was once asked about guilt, he said that Tibetans basically like themselves. And Americans don't basically like themselves. <laughs> I mean, this is a cultural difference. I mean, Thais and Tibetans, I'm sure, feel guilt, but they've also, you know, it's more, it's, it, it isn't a, a kind of obsessive, uh, neurotic, uh, obsession with, with uh, themselves, feeling worthless because they can't live up to such high standards, high principles, ideals that are held up to us as how we should be. Like when you're always pointing at the ideal, you can never, you're not an ideal, you can't be that. You can't be perfect in that ideal sense. Because life in, in this realm that we're experiencing isn't an ideal realm. It's the way it is. All that arises ceases, what's born dies, so all conditions are impermanent, Dhamma is not self. So you've got this reflective Dhamma kind of natural understanding of the way things are, rather than always pointing to the highest possible standard and principle ideal that you can create with your intellect. So, you know, that as a Christian, you're, you're born, the idea that you're born in sin. So being born is like a sin. Where, you know, in Thailand, being born isn't a sin. You're not born in sin. But so, so then, you know, this, this affects how you're culturally, you're, you're, your cultural conditioning affects your, how you see yourself as a sinner, as not good enough, and, and you're always comparing yourself to high principles, standards, and ideals. You can only feel, you know, you're not, you can't ever attain that kind of perfection. You're, so you tend to feel guilty. People feel guilty over all kinds of things. Sometimes, Guilt is justified in some way, like 
lying or stealing or that, you know, the, that's the kind of guilt and shame we feel when we know we've been deceitful or done something wrong. But in the Western sense of guilt, it's more, much more a sense of an obsession that we carry, no matter how, you know, virtuous we live our lives. It's still this basic feeling of self-criticism. Guilt because we were born, guilt because we have sexual desires, we have sexual fantasies, we feel anger, we feel jealousy, we feel guilty about being jealous, and we feel guilty about having fears, and we can feel guilty about everything, you know, if we, because it becomes always a sense of me and mine, I'm this imperfect form here that is trying to and always looking high up to perfection, but failing every time. We never quite reach that, that level that we can imagine. So like in Dhamma, when you talk about the way it is, it's not about the way it should be. You know, ideals are fine, and nothing wrong with them. They're like, guiding stars, they give direction. But when you try to cling to a star, you know, it's beyond your reach. And you don't, you aren't seeing where you are, you know, if, you, if you're looking too high up, you're going to fall off the cliff. You've got to also be aware of the here and now, the way it is, rather than keep, keep holding your attention too high because just the the planetary life survival and the human aid we need to know where our feet are where we're sitting we need to know the you know the the way things are rather than always thinking that things should be other than what they are so if you're very idealistic, you're going to be very disappointed in life because you know the you're, you're, you may have you may be very altruistic, you know, principled with high standards, virtuous, but then you tend to feel very intimidated and critical of everyone else who doesn't live up to your principles or the high standards. So that's a form of suffering, is is looking down on others because they're not as good and virtuous as, as one conceives oneself. So just see, you know, the reason why Buddhism is so attractive to the Western mind is it's a kind of relief you know, it's a philosophy, it's a, it's a kind of relief to, to investigate, to be able to recognize human, human existence is like this, human desires, human inclinations, human tendencies are, are like this. They're not, you know, coming from the 
what we imagine we should be, but we are, you know, sentient forms, sensitive forms in space. We feel like this, and this is the way it is. All condi- and then this, this reflection, all conditions are impermanent and not self. So you're, you're freeing yourself from the limitation of seeing, your, seeing yourself only through your thinking process, through your physical appearance. Because ultimately what we all are is perfection. Dhamma is our real home. So in terms of meditation practice, it's not that you, you have, you're, you're a sinner or you're imperfect and you've got to make yourself perfect. Become an arahant through, through attaining stages, getting something you don't have, refining yourself, making yourself better. It's through recognizing the delusions that what you're not, you're not the physical body, you're not the mental, uh, states of mind, you're not the thoughts, the memories, the emotions. They are what they are, they come and go. And when you let everything go, when you have that realization of Niroda, Third Noble Truth, you let go of everything, what remains is consciousness, aware of itself, Consciousness knows, you know, it's self-knowing, it's awareness, aware of awareness. And that's what we call jit wang, or emptiness. It's not like a void of nothingness, but it's empty of grasping, of delusion, of uh, self-views. And so it's peaceful. Peaceful.